0: My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm my host, Christian Ashley, and today we'll be going into Genesis and the chapters 7 and 8. Decided to combine the two of them together, kind of fit together. I mean, not only in the narrative sense, but like there's a lot of stuff there that just makes sense if you do them both at the same time. So we're going to do that by starting in verses one through five. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep the offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. God commands Noah to bring the animals together to be on the ark and survive with his family while the flood comes. Obviously, this brings up many different criticisms of this being a literal history and questions about the way this could work. So I'm going to delve into some of them, I don't have time for all of them. I'm not going to have time to cover everything within the things we're covering. So there are other resources out there to check out plenty of places to go. uh, I will uh, caution you out there not to go somewhere like a Ken Ham or a Kent Hovind. I know there's some people in this audience who do like them. I I particularly just don't care for them as people or their rationality behind some of their answers. Now, some of it, yes, like I, I am a literal person. I think there was a literal flood, I think. No, God did command Noah to put all the animals on the ark and stuff like that. And it happened this amount of time, blah, blah, blah. But I don't really care for them as people when it comes to the way they debate others who don't believe the same way that they do. That if you don't think the exact same way they do, then you're not a real Christian, it kind of feels at times. I don't think I don't know if they've ever actually said that out loud, but that's kind of the gist I've gotten from listening to their debates. And not to say that the people they've been debating against are also most rational people in the world. Yeah, it's just not a good thing overall. So I'm going to try and limit myself. If we were doing like a, like a extra show on all the things within the flood and all the questions, I would definitely put more emphasis on stuff. But for the sake of this, I'm going to focus on these things. So first, let us note that the animals are divided in clean, unclean, uh, including those which are clean who have the seven pairs instead of the regular two that we kind of get in our minds. Oh, they came two by two. Well, not all of them did some of the animals, the clean animals did. Now, when we do get to Leviticus forever from now, uh, depending on the pace we go, like there'll be a couple chapters of Genesis, a couple chapters of Exodus, where we'll pair up more than one chapter a week. So it's coming uh, sooner than you think, but it's still a bit a ways. But when we do get there, I'll cover more like, Hey, you know, this animal is here because of this reason, or we don't know why this animal is here. Uh, ultimately, because God said they were clean. So who gets, gets to say that? Well, God does. So there we go. Now, the seven pairs of of birds and some of the clean animals, excuse me, the clean animals are kept separate from the others. Like people ask, well, why? Why them? And why not the other ones? Well, well, the first could be that, you know, they'll be eaten During the family's time on the ark, a second reason could be that they will be needed for sacrifices made to God once they reach the dry land again, because we see, you know, birds are used for sacrifices in Jewish uh, law uh, ceremonies and, you know, different animals are sheep, obviously so on and so forth. Uh, So that could be a reason why, like a lot of these questions, unfortunately the answer is going to be, we don't know because it's not explicitly spelled out for us in the text. You know, the answer I just love coming back to in all this. So That's a possibility there. I'm sure there's more I forgot while I was doing my notes here. So moving on. Meanwhile, if you've studied biology at all or looked at how many critters exist in the world, your credulity over the mechanics of how all of them could be on the arc at once may be stretched to its limits right now. And you know what I say to that? That's fair. And you should be questioning the logistics of it all. If you have a rational mind, you should go, wait a minute, we got all those cows and ah, oh, man, you know, wildebeest and birds and snakes. And as my watch goes off, that's lovely. <laughs> and, you know, what if the dinosaurs were there too? Like, how am I supposed to imagine all these animals on the ark that was described to me earlier? They're not all going to fit. Good. Question that. Don't just say, well, it doesn't make sense. But also God said it was here because it's in the Bible. Therefore, it happened. And hey, questioning things can be good. I don't want to get away from the the... Uh, I almost said bad questions. That's the way wrong thing of saying that the tough questions. I don't want to ever shirk away from those. I, I won't probably spend as much time as you know, you might need on them, but I definitely suggest you go listen to other people, what they say about this, even the people I disagree with to see where they're at when they come to these questions. So how is it possible for all living animals that were not in the water? And some people even say, even the fish and uh, dolphins and whales were even brought in the ark too, depending on, who's writing their commentaries here. Uh, how are they able to fit in an arc as relatively small as described in a previous chapter? Well, there are several ways this could be answered. The first is, of course, that the story is merely just allegorical and fantastical, and, you know, this didn't actually happen, or if it did, it's not uh, as described in the Bible. It's just like human interpretation was wrong when it came to writing this down. or You'll get a multiplicity of ideas of where that comes on whether it actually happened or if it's just like it did happen, but not as described here, people go all over the place. Now, obviously I don't subscribe to that idea, but there are plenty of good Christians out there following God who do. And uh, without you know further evidence that says like a hundred percent, God himself said, all these things are happening. I can't get too angry with them. But I am going to take the more literal stance here because I do think God in this chapter is being way more literal in his description of things. Now, obviously, not everyone's going to take that same way, but I do want to bring it up. I want to give it its time in the sun so you can wrestle that out yourself. Now, the second has an idea that's been proposed at Mirapa possibly at this time. You know, genetic diversity wasn't as diverse as it is now. And the many subspecies of different animals that we have in this day didn't exist after the flood excuse me it didn't exist until after the flood ended and God populated the earth with the survivors, which means there weren't that many animals on the ark. So this would say like there wouldn't have been like a king cobra and a garter snake on the ark at the same time would be this idea. I don't particularly cold to this one. I see the logic behind it, but at the end of the day, like it's people trying to explain something that we don't have a lot of information on. So I get why this is an answer too. Now the third, and this is my personal favorite just because I'm a nerd <laughs> the geek and i just like to make this one is that the the ark could just have been bigger on the inside and god made it his personal tardis <laughs> in order to fit all the species in there without issue now i, I say that half jokingly like it could be a possibility that god you know said Noah, uh, i want you to build it this way but it was a lot bigger on the inside like it's not said in the text that way so i can't say yep that's the answer and there would be a lot of people out there who rightly so would say in an argument against that idea is that, hey, you're just providing a God in the gaps argument. And that's that's a multifaceted term. Some people use it correctly. Some people don't. It's generally the idea of, well, we don't have an answer here. So we're just going to say to get from point A to point B, well, if we don't have anything to fill in, well, God just solved the problem. And then we move on with our lives. And there are other ways of saying that, but that's a simpler way of putting it. And I don't want to be that person, you know, to that extent. Like, obviously there are plenty of opportunities in scripture where things happen because God did them. So God in the gaps arguments aren't inherently a bad idea that lots of people will say they're a bad idea, but we got to be careful about how we use them. If we just say, well, God did it without providing a lot of evidence for why God will want to do it or in the text, God explicitly does that thing. We got to be a little careful there because people will accuse us in that sense, rightly so, of just, well, you're not thinking critically. You're just because it has to happen this way. You just say God did it. So that's something to be mindful of in all of this is like, well, do I say it? because God had to have let this happen or what have you, or because that's actually what happened. Well, you got to wrestle with that. You got to figure it out for yourself. And I'll help you out as best as I can, but I can't control your mind. Neither would you want me to do that. Neither would I want to do that. So the fourth idea could be that, as said in chapter six, all the animals were gathered according to its kind. So this would be the idea that is uh, really more of a modern idea. Not to the extent that we never humans thought of this way as there being classifications for animals, but when it comes to taxonomy and, like, classifying, well, this lizard is also related to this snake, which is also related to this, um, excuse me, lost my train of thought there, Uh, this, goodness gracious, what was I going to say? This alligator... We can then say, okay, there are genetic traits associated with these creatures that they are in the same classification system. I'm going to go into all the information there. It's it's real fun to explore. It's one of the things I like doing. But for the sake of time, we will just go there. Like you can say, well, according to its kind, therefore, uh, just a single pair of snakes were there. Or it was a single pair, or maybe, uh, yeah, a single pair of dogs or a single pair of spiders or what have you, you know. That's something we could throw out there. I do actually prefer that more than three. It's just funnier to me that way to just say three is a thing. But it gets to that point. Well, when it comes to the classification of animals, like I said before, people have done it over history. But a more modern sense of that doesn't really happen until the 18th century when Linnaeus really starts his taxonomic endeavors. So perhaps God could have allowed in that older sense of, well, this is a kind of this. So therefore, it's just a pair of spiders. And then later on after the flood, we do the, get the genetic diversity of spiders we have today, where it could be jumping spiders and tarantulas and so on and so forth. And that's just it became more diverse then. Now, the fifth possibility is that the flood was a highly localized event that only affected the area around Mesopotamia, thus, meaning only the animals native to that region of the world needed to be protected from the effects of the flood. Now, some people who are still more literal and even people who aren't, they kind of team up on this one and agree for different reasons. And say, well, oh, the flood was only this uh, specific area. We'll get to that later on in this because we have other things we need to focus on. Uh, and just say, well, because it was only here, therefore only the animals native in that region could actually be in the Ark and survive for this long. And that's why it makes more sense to them. So that's a rational way of going about it. I don't agree. I, I think it is a rational idea, but ultimately it fails the logic of the rest of the story. But we don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go for the more literal interpretation. There are other people out there are going to do the exact opposite. So where do you stand? Let me know. I'd be more than willing to hear you guys out. And like I said, there are more questions to be asked, but we're going to focus on some of those in a bit. But before we continue, let us not gloss over a, uh, gloss over a very important detail here. God finds Noah to be righteous. Now, we mentioned this last chapter, but this is still an astounding thing to hear and something we should remember when we look back at Noah, he alone, among however many people are around, even if it's just a local event, none of them are righteous enough in God's eyes to be protected from this devastation. Only he and his family, only they were given away out of the punishment that he too would deserve because Noah still a man, he still sinned. He would deserve this had God not looked past his sins to focus on his righteousness and faith instead. Other men and women around him had no love and faith for God, but Noah did. And God recognizes this and rewards him and his family for it. Hebrews eleven seven in the NIV uh, enhances our understanding of Noah's faith when it says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, those are, that's some high praise there. Like we said earlier, not everyone is called out in Hebrews for their faith. Like some people are left out. Noah is in there because of his piety, because of his faith. And that's something we should look into. So we'll be moving on from there to Genesis uh, chapter 7, verses 6 through 16. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, And Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to its kind, according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, and all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. God has officially begun his judgment on mankind and the wicked earth, wiping out all those not on the ark. We'll see a little more how that happens in other chapters. But for now, there we go. It's happening. Forty days and nights of continual rain ensured that nothing would survive this onslaught. But this, of course, does raise further questions. And I'll try and answer them as best as possible, the ones that we'll focus on here. I mentioned this earlier. Was this a global or localized flood there are two main thoughts here that is and many people have sprung up debating about whether or not it was global or local in nature a local flood would certainly be a devastating event still and be of such great stature that its effects would travel down in oral legends for generations to come like this happens in cultures around the world like why why haven't you built like a a city on this here like the it's perfect for a poor and all these things and Come to find out in the oral uh, histories of the people of whatever region in the world in, like a tsunami would have come in or a, a hurricane or something like that, and destroyed every time they built something there. So they have an oral history of, hey, never go there. There's a demon there. Or uh, the gods have declared that area off limits. And that's because they have fun stories told in the past that, hey, this has happened before. Everyone got wiped out there for the most part. Oh, we should never build there again. So people, if this was just a local event, would have that event and say, hey, guys, this happened, we're the reason, we're the only people who survived, we'll let every one of our descendants know this, so on and so forth, and it just spread like that. Now, however, if we take God at his word in this story, then this cannot be the case. He promises to blot out every living thing he created, not on the ark and in the waters, and he hasn't used hyperbole to describe his mission to eradicate the world from most of the influence of humanity's sins. So why would he suddenly start now? Now, this is why I kind of go more global and that he says, all created things. Everything that breathes breath. What doesn't breathe breath? Well, the things in the ocean for the most part. Uh, so that's one argument for why people do believe that dolphins and whales were in the ark is because they do breathe life. <laughs> And still, people do think that there would have been uh, other uh, fish and sponges and squids and so like that because they're also part of life and God didn't wipe them out completely. So it's all over the place, dear people, as is expected in something like this, where we don't get like a, a bullet point, okay, God did this, therefore this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Anyways, another big reason I believe in a global flood is, and a lot of scholars do bring this up as well, is that every single people group in the world that hasn't been formed like relatively recently has an example of a flood narrative as part of their mythology. The Babylonians, the Polynesians, the Cherokee, and beyond all have some form of a flood myth. This tells me that something immensely traumatic happened in humanity's history And they were told to remember it, but as often happens with stories over time, they degraded away from the truth with the passage of time, but kept the central idea of there being a global flood. Also, later in this chapter, the flood is described as going over all the high mountains. The word for all in the original Hebrew is kol, or kol, which the vast majority of the time that I've researched this word, there may be exceptions to this, I'll fully admit that. I haven't looked at every instance, because guess what, the word is used over 4,000 times, if I remember correctly, in all of the Old Testament. So extend a little grace my way, please. Uh, It simply means all, every, or the whole. Now, this tells me, given the language used in a non-poetic sense, that everything was submerged by the flood, and there is no evidence biblically for a localized flood. Now, obviously, there are more things to be brought up on both sides of the argument, but we simply don't have the time for them when there are other questions to ask. So for the sake of time, we'll move on to our next one. Which is, some of the animals on board the Ark were no doubt carnivores, because they're still alive today. So how did they survive for 150 days, which we'll find later on in the chapter, without ample food? Excellent question. Now, there are several ways for this to be answered. One of the more unpopular ones is that no animals were carnivores before the Flood, and it is only after the Flood that animals and humans diversified to be so. Thus, any animal we identify as a carnivore now would have been a vegetarian before the flood. Now, a lot of the idea behind this premise is that in Genesis 9, God tells Noah and his family that all living things are theirs to eat, so perhaps there was some restriction beforehand that prevented this from happening. Also in Genesis 1, God tells all the animals to eat of the plants of the garden, which means before the fall, carnivores didn't exist in the sense that we would understand them. Now, another idea is that God simply supernaturally satisfied the needs of the animals without them needing to eat. Now, this would be, in my opinion, more of that God-in-the-gaps kind of argument. It's like, there's nothing explicitly said in the text that God did this for the animals. So I kind of shy away from that one a little bit more. It's not impossible, because God is certainly powerful enough to do so, and if he chose to do so, he could. It's just not said in the text. Now, another idea is that God simply supernat... Oh, excuse me. (laughs) The wrong All right, Another idea, the actual next idea is that this is one of the reasons why seven pairs of birds and seven pairs of clean animals were there so that the carnivores would have something to feast on. Most carnivores need to feed around seven to ten days after they're fed, while others, like snakes, can last a little longer, which would mean there would have been plenty of birds and other clean animals for the carnivorous animals to feast on during the hundred and fifty days of their arc now, I kind of go a little closer to that one. But once again, as frustrating as it is, we're not explicitly told. <laughs> so that's why we have questions. And questions aren't a bad thing. Do not ever hear me say that. These are questions you need to ask because as you're reading a story, you kind of go, wait a minute. Well, he said this, but I know this is true of animals. They need to eat. Well, if lions are on there, why aren't they killing all the cows? Or are they? Is there a cow there enough? Did they preserve it enough for it to last long enough? I don't know. That's okay. Ask those questions, but also realize we can only get so far with our answers because we are not first person witnesses of these events. These are told secondhand after many years after, like Moses is several thousand years removed from these events. So there you go. Now we'll finish off chapter seven and move on to eight after this by going to verses 17 through 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole earth were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land whose nostrils were the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Let's say that again. For 150 days, Noah and his family remained on the ark. The storms had passed them by 110 days before but they were unable to reach dry land for quite some time. Now, we have no narrative of their exploits during this time, but we do see, given how God reacted to them later on in chapter 8, that they were not punished for apostasy while on the ark, which shows us that, unlike their descendants, the Israelites, much later on, they kept the faith and continued to worship God for saving them from the fate of their fellows. That is astounding to me, because I know just how poorly I would fail Given these exact circumstances, especially in a day before we have technology, uh, I would have had uh, no books to read right here. There would have been no Internet service because everything would be underwater. I mean, maybe global satellites would still be a thing, but maybe God got rid of them in this situation. But like, I would be one of the worst of the worst. That's why I do have some sympathy and empathy for the people of Israel later on when we do get to the Exodus and go, I would have done the same and worse, complaining. I like my creature comforts, but look at them. Look at Noah's family and how they handle the situation. It doesn't say that they never griped. It never says, it doesn't say that they never complained, but it does say later on in eight that they were faithful and that God was still protecting them because they recognized the only reason they were alive is because of him. That's something we should celebrate. That's something we should praise and elevate. Say, why can't I do the same in situations that are way less worse then all of humanity being wiped out, me being on a, stuck on a, uh, a boat with a bunch of smelly animals for fifty days. Just some food for thought there. As we move on to Genesis 8, 1 through 12. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was, restra- was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, so we're going back a little bit in the timeline here, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth, then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. So let's go to the start of this one. God, when it says God remembered Noah, it's not like he forgot about his existence. But this is yet another anthropomorphic I said that worked out pretty well this time. Good for me. Uh, attribution human writers give God to help us understand that he is about to do a work that he earlier promised he would do. So it's not like uh, God suddenly uh, flipped the switch in his head and go, oh yeah, no, that Noah guy. Let's see what he's up to. No, he knew the whole time. He was watching over him the whole time. But it's just us giving an aspect to him that we can look at and say, oh, I remember you know, something like that. I know what it's like to deal with that. And we see God had promised to save Noah, his family, and the animals on the ark from his wrathful and righteous destruction on the earth. When he had promised at the same time to destroy everything else he proved it by keeping them safe in the midst of the flood and while the waters were receding but now he would prove it even more by giving them access to land and a chance to do better than their fellows and populating the earth with people who worship god correctly now real quick i don't have this in my notes but i i did remember it while i was reading like uh, it says the mountains of ararat and not mount ararat so this would have be more than likely a region in Turkey right now. So there are plenty of people out there who've tried to find the lost Ark. And I say more power to them because it probably wouldn't have survived for all these thousands of years. But, you know, you do you. It's a fine mystery. It's one I I do have explored myself. I may add like the the flood narrative as a whole to the Friday Night Fright thing I do for Systematic Ecology on the YouTube page or I might even just say, well, "Have we found the ark?" or something like that. That'd be a fun one to do for religious strangeness. But we we don't know. And even if we did, uh, I mean, for all we know, people could have just put something up there, and it's not the same ark. I, I don't know, man. But like it wouldn't inherently prove the story. I, I would like there to be complete and utter evidence and say, "Hey, Noah was here." <laughs> he he wrote in proto Hebrew or whatever it was the the one world language at the time, but we don't know. So moving on, what we can say about Noah is that here he proves himself to have a scientific and inquisitive mind in how he approaches the problem of whether the earth has returned retorn, uh, returned to normalcy or not. He uses birds who would be able to scout from the air and would return if there was nowhere for them to land. You know, a raven's not going to say, well, I'm suddenly a seagull now and just land in the water and live the rest of his life at the sea. It's going to go, no, oh, there's nowhere for me to land. I'm going to go back to where there was land. And then stay there. The uh, same thing with the dove. A dove is not going to turn into a pelican. It's going to go, say, hmm, ain't no land here to or trees to land on. So I'm going to go back to the boat. So Noah is smart. Now, I don't know if he doesn't have a bachelor's in science that we know of. He could have. He said 600 some years before this point to learn a lot of things. So maybe he does. And it's just never said in the text. But we can tell from this one perspective that he does have an inquisitive mind. One, that goes out into the world and says, okay, how do I solve this problem? I want to get back on dry land. Well, what can I do? Well, i send out the birds. And this is something that I want to praise for a moment here because I think it gets glossed over a lot when it comes to him. It's like, oh, well, he just did this. It was a nice experiment, blah, 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 and we move on. Like, no, this is a nice experiment. And one that shows us, like, hey, like, he trusts God, but he also doesn't just, he's not passive in his belief. He's going out there to prove things. And we should be like that, too. Like, And also, we, he doesn't get discouraged when his experiments fail. Because all that means is that the results he wanted just weren't there yet. And so, too, should we explore the world with a rational mind? Like, learn how to do this. Like, I know it's a tall order for a lot of people. It's a tall order for me some days. You know, as much as I pride myself on intelligence and wisdom, I'm still one of the dumbest people I know sometimes. But on my best days... That's something I need to apply better. Go, okay, here's what I'm expecting to happen. Well, if it doesn't happen, how am I going to react? Well, I need to react better than I did the last time, because last time I hurt a lot of people's hearts just because I didn't get the results that I wanted. So let's learn how not to do that next time so that no one gets hurt. Or if people do get hurt, they don't get hurt as much as last time. Like we need to do the same thing. We need to be rational. God did not call you to be a moron. He did not call you to be an idiot in this world and just say, well, whatever happens, happens. Like, no. He wants you to think for yourself. He wants you to look at this, this book, this same book that we're both reading here, and ask questions. Is this true? Is there actually a guy named Noah? Or is this just a story? And if it is just a story, what would God mean? What is he trying to accomplish by doing that? Or if this is actual history, what is God trying to accomplish? Ask yourself these questions. And we're going to come to different viewpoints. And as long as you're still his, that's Okay. As long as you're not introducing some heresy uh, that I don't know what, what could you do in a circumstance? Uh, create Darren uh, what was his name's uh, movie about Noah where he took a lot from the apocrypha and <laughs> had a very poor understanding of the story. Like uh, you could do that, sure, and make a terrible bad movie. Even though I know some people do like it. I mean, there's some enjoyable things about it. It's just not a good movie, in my opinion. But you see my point. Be rational. Think through things. Be like Noah here. Noah, by our standards, is probably not a Mensa scholar. Neither am I. But given what he had at the time, he used his resources wisely. Go out there and do the same. And when failure comes, because failure will, learn how to learn from that failure. It's okay. Oh, he didn't just say, well, the raven failed, and I guess the water's never, you know, going to recede, and there's no more land. No, he did it again and again so that he could test out his hypotheses. Now, you know why I'm telling you to do all this? Because you need to learn how to do so, because you and I, we both live in a world where being in a state of mind that can help us handle a rough world that doesn't care about what we desire to happen. What that means is that we can be better off mentally. We can think through things better. We can go through problems better, knowing, okay, I know what kind of world I'm in. I know the way I can do things. I know what God is capable of. So then we work through that. So when failure comes, it's okay, because that just means God didn't want it to succeed at that point in time. 13 through 22, and we'll finish off uh, chapter uh, 8. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps up on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons, and his wife, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and took some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Here's one of the more beautiful parts of the story. God has delivered on his promise to Noah and a brand new world opens itself up to him and his family. His faith has been rewarded at great cost. Everyone they knew is no more. And they had the immense job of making sure it doesn't have to end this way again. Well, So in order to keep his, help keep his faithful remnant, you know, not content, like, Hey, like I'm not mad at you. God makes a new promise through a new covenant where he says he will never flood the earth again. Well, guess what? That hasn't happened, and it will never happen because God keeps his promises. However, in that same covenant, we see God hasn't absolved humanity of their sins and points out the evil intentions of our hearts even in the midst of offering Noah and his family safety from the judgment he had pronounced on the other humans. God isn't a fool. He knows Noah is going to sin. He knows Noah's sons are going to sin. Their wives are going to sin. Their children are going to sin. We are going to sin because we come from him. Like he's not like, well, had a good run. Knowing your family, you're all absolved and everything's okay. Because that's not how it works. That's not how you get rid of sin. Because they're going to keep sinning. There's no salvation found through that. But there is a hope found in that. A hope that God will not blot out humanity as a whole. Because there will always be a remnant. There will be a Noah. At least one person that God will look upon favorably and stop his wrath from falling upon us. And that's good. But God doesn't offer this new covenant until after Noah has once more proven his devotion, love, and faithfulness to God by offering sacrifices to him. Noah's faith is immense, and we should learn from it. Look at this. the One of the first things he does when he gets out is builds an altar and offers sacrifices. You saved us from this devastation, God. You deserve the praise and the glory. Well, guess what? God does deserve the praise and the glory. And Noah, that is one of the first things he does. Why can't I do the same? Why can't we do the same? Like his actions here are something we should all inspire to enact in our own lives. So just be mindful of that through the week. As you're hearing this probably on Monday or whenever you're listening to this, just think about it. How can I do the same in my own life? And with that, we're done with Genesis 7 and 8. Uh, next week, I think I'm probably going to do 9 and 10 together because there's, there's a lot of genealogies there. And not that I won't have anything to say on them, as we've discussed before, but like, it'll just be easier to get through them if we do it this way. Um, so please, just get a chance to leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice just to help us out with the ratings there. If you're interested in my own fictional writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley if you're all interested in some further solid studies into the bible and its teachings then check out the other members of the anazaal ministry podcasting network like uh Brandon uh at my seminary life blah, my seminary life has been doing a lot of fun stuff asking questions uh about you know the old testament what i did with him and uh the, he actually went through genesis as well with Joe Day of uh buddy walk with jesus and uh plenty of other guys Joshua has been there uh Will has been on there it's a ton of fun stuff there like we have a lot of good shows on this platform Like and stuff that I don't agree with, but I still enjoy listening to. That's part of the fun. Uh, The challenging fun of this is hearing those voices you don't agree with. And maybe I'm that person for you. And I'm happy to be that Uh, to an extent. I want to be like, oh, I'm so happy that they don't like what I have to say. And like, no, I I like to be that challenging voice. Just as much as I'm sure other people who have different viewpoints like to hear me, uh, see me listen to them. so Then I can be challenged in what I'm thinking about. So that's something to look forward to there. And the other stuff we're doing, you can contact me. At, let nothing podcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a, se- a special thank you to Joshua Noel for the editing that he does and for the music he adds to the podcast and with all that in mind God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine and allow me one more time to remind you let nothing move you Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting, but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code, let nothing move you all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up. So you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff, to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code, let nothing move you. All right. See ya.